Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. If you will turn your attention to Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, we hear these words. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. For three days he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord had said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, to the Lord, uh, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this very moment, he is praying and he has seen a vision. A man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But, but Ananias answered, Lord, I, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your your saints in Jerusalem. And, and, And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself, not not you, Ananias, I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house, and he laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored then he got up and was baptized and after taking some food he regained his strength this is the reading of the sacred word it is reliable and it can be trusted 
Will you pray with me now? Come, Holy Spirit, our hearts inspire and fill us with your holy fire. For if you are with us, then nothing else matters. But if you are not with us, then nothing else matters. In your holy name we pray. Amen. There is one line, one verse, one word in this passage that I just read before your hearing that stands up off the page and begs to be preached. One verse that has captured my imagination and my attention and reached down and lifted me by the tie and said, preach me, and it is this verse. Then they dragged him. It's not that verse. Let's drag the other verse, the next one. And Paul got up from the ground. And though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. What does it mean to go through your life with your eyes wide open and actually see nothing? Years ago, Laura and I lived in the Washington, D.C. area. We, we lived in Gaithersburg, Maryland, right outside of D.C., and one of our favorite things to do would be to go downtown, to go down to the district, go down to D.C. and check out the sights. It was so exciting. The history, the action, the, the sights, sounds, the smells, and everywhere you went, there were street performers, maybe a guitarist, a lone saxophonist, on the corner, just imagine in the cold weather with the fog from the street gate billowing up around the sound of a lone saxophonist. It might just be an entertainer or it could be a homeless person with a trumpet attempting to just scrounge together a few bucks for food or a hot cup of coffee. And, and after a while, the scene begins to blur as a part of the environment to, to the point that you barely even notice it anymore. It's just part of the sight, the sound, the kind of the, the cacophony of sound that is D.C. D.C. has a, a lot of cacophonies of sound, but this is the more pleasant. And yet, one day in, in 2007, someone working for the Washington Post said, you know, we see these people all the time. It might be interesting. Nobody ever stops and notices them. It might be interesting if we tried a little experiment. So, they said, what, what, what would happen if we got not just any performer, but like the world's best at something? And performing at the height of their skill, not just any music, but like the, the greatest music ever composed. Would it make a difference? Would people stop? Would they notice? And so it happened. They recruited the help of Joshua Bell. Joshua Bell is 
considered by many as the greatest violinist of our time. He was a a child prodigy. People have watched with great interest his career as a child growing up, and he's played in some of the most prestigious arenas around the world, and they recruited him for their experiment. So it happened that one Friday morning, January the 12th, 2007, at about 8.51 a.m., Joshua Bell, the world's greatest violinist, emerged from the metro station at L'Enfant Plaza. He's disguised. He's wearing a long sleeve T-shirt and a Washington Nationals baseball cap. He positions himself up against a wall behind a garbage can. And then he leans down and opens up a small violin case, and he pulls out of that violin case a Gibson X Huberman, a violin handmade in 1713 by Antonio Stradivari. That instrument in his hand is worth three and a half million dollars. And right there behind a trash can on L'Enfant Plaza, he began to play. And for 45 minutes, he played some of the most exquisite music ever written in the history of humankind. Uh, About 1,097 individuals passed by. 1,097 individuals. Seven stopped to listen. Now, just three days before, he packed the house at Boston's prestigious um, Symphony Hall, right? Two, Two weeks after this experiment, he was at Bethesda at the Music Center, and it was standing room only. But on this day, as he played behind a garbage can, the world's greatest violinist has 1,097 people pass by and only seven stop and only one recognizes who he is. Now, 28 people were kind enough in their striding to stop long enough to throw some pocket change into his violin case. And this this cat who can command more than $1,000 per minute to play in most venues around the world that day racked up a whopping 32 bucks in change. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I want you to see about one minute of what was captured on the security camera at L'Enfant Plaza. And as you watch, I want you to ask yourself this question. Is this how God is present in my life? Take a look.
the world's most accomplished violinist, and people streaming on by as if it was elevator music. How could they know? But my question remains, is this how God has attempted to be present in my life, in your life, and yet because of things, of the rush hour of our lives, we're continually bypassing because of our proximity, perhaps it blurs into an elastic consciousness. We do this all the time. I mean, certainly with strangers on the street, we do this. We, we do this with people who are co-workers and classmates, those who are with us on the team or on the squad or acting with us in the troop. We, we do this with the people who are closest to us, like our children and our spouses and parents, siblings. And because of our proximity to one another, we barely recognize on most days the, the unimaginable mystery the fathomless mystery that is hidden, tucked away, the Christ of God in those who are closest to us. And, and these are the ones we see with our eyes. They're visible. And so how much more do we not see the ways that God, through God's Spirit, that sometimes blows like the wind, how much more do we not see when God is attempting to capture our attention and do something new in us. I think this is what the blindness of Paul, whose first name was Saul, is all about. Paul, who became Paul after this encounter with the risen Christ, was a Saul who represented all of us. His blindness represents what's possible in each and every one of us. See, we've come now to a place in the book of Acts where we have already learned that because of the resurrection, well, the Spirit has now poured out the Spirit's own presence upon all flesh. All flesh with no exceptions. That means male and female, old and young, rich and poor, educated and uneducated. We've seen so far in the book of Acts that God has infused God's own spirit into the experience, the lived experience of human beings who follow him. And now all of a sudden, they're doing things and they're saying things that they have never done and said before. In fact, in the earlier chapters that we've already studied, we saw them begin to say things and proclaim things and declare things that only Jesus declared in the beginning. And now they're doing it. We see them actually doing things, performing miracles of healing and, and performing acts of compassion and mercy and love that originally they only saw him performing. But now, all barriers have been removed and in each one of them, they now become like this new temple of the presence of God living and moving and loving and living in the world. And it sounds like good news because it is. And Jesus says to them, this is like a, I don't know, a new kingdom, a new way to exist in this world. And the book of Acts shows us the development of how this good news spreads across the geography of the first century map that we've been considering. 
And he says, I want you to be my witnesses about these good things, about the things that are possible in God. I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, start where you are, in Judea and Samaria, and then in the uttermost parts of the world. And so on one level, what we've been studying and considering is that the book of Acts is a telling of how the good news has spread all through time and space and has landed even upon our ears. But more than simply a literal telling of how the good news spread, allegorically, this is how it happens in every human heart. Because there's a Jerusalem in you. And a Samaria and Judea in you, there's an uttermost part of you. And when you come to grips with what the Spirit is attempting to do, when you learn to see what God is up to in your life and through your life, well, it begins to move in the the geography of your heart until eventually you ask yourself, is there any realm of me that does not belong to him? So the story of the book of Acts is not just the story of the spread of the church. It's the story of the spread of the reign of God in every human heart willing to yield to him. But every time good news emerges, there's resistance to the good news. So you don't challenge generation upon generation of custom and tradition without running into a few roadblocks. And those who were in religious authority in the first century, check it, those who were supposed to be those who empowered people to see God, the religious authorities and the institutions and establishments of faith itself, the ones who were supposed to be the most cited, empowered to help others see that God can reconcile them and forgive them and love, they were the most blind. And so, yeah, we have the story of Paul or Saul who who becomes blind, but, but Saul stands up off the pages of Scripture to hold up a mirror to me, to hold up a mirror to you. Because there are moments when we become so, we become so confident in the way things are that we become blind to what the Spirit desires them to become. See, I've told you before that the book of Luke, or the book of Acts, has a twin, a companion. It's a two-volume set. The first volume is the Gospel of Luke. So we believe the same author penned the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And in Luke's Gospel, volume one, the prequel, Jesus stands to preach his very first sermon at his home synagogue in Galilee. And of all the things that he could have said to describe why he is here, he picks from Isaiah, and this is what he says. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's Favor to proclaim sight to the blind. Now, in many ways, this this mission statement of Jesus, right? You might want to call it that, is in every way literal. To literally proclaim release to the captives, to let the the the, the those who are in bondage be set free, to to let the the literal blind see. 
But you and I know that there are always layers of meaning to texts like that. Because the truth is I may see, but I may be spiritually blind. And isn't it interesting that that those who think they see the most in religion are they who are perhaps most spiritually blind. So there's this story uh, in, in the book of John. Uh, this man is born blind, and Jesus comes and literally heals this man who was born blind from, from birth. And this man now is filled with faith and belief, and he's just overwhelmed. And so he sees, not just physically, but what God is up to in this moment. Well, about a chapter and a half later, the religious authorities, those who are charged with the task of helping people see the mystery of God, well, they, they're complaining and they're, they're questioning this blind man who now can see. It. Who gave you your sight? Who performed this miracle? And in whose name and by what authority did he perform this miracle? And he's like, I don't know. All I know is I was blind, but now I see. And what John does as he holds up side by side and he juxtaposes the reality that in this life you can be blind but truly see or you can be sighted but be spiritually blind. It causes Jesus to offer this disturbing word right there in the text. I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see and those who do not or who do see may become blind and over in Mark's gospel he says something similar he he calls them out he says do you have eyes yet yet fail to see this is I believe what the blindness of, of Saul is all about Because if we are not careful, we can walk the path of Saul and become spiritually blind while assuming that we are they who see the most clearly. Now, how do you become spiritually blind? We become spiritually blind when we are more confident in the certitudes of our traditions then we are yielded to the movement of God's windy spirit, which is always, always, always doing a new thing. Now I want this this graphic to stay up on the screen for a moment because I I want you to just kind of drink that in for a moment. Will you encounter that statement? I I, I just want, want to offer, based on what we see in Paul's life and in his contemporaries, there was a confidence So much so, a confidence in the certitudes of their traditions that the the confidence of their traditions was blinding their yieldedness to the movement of the Spirit. So when we become spiritually blind, when we become more confident in the certitudes, the things about which we are absolutely certain, you can't show me any differently. I am not going to even consider hearing something that would counteract my certitude. When we are more certain about the certitudes of our traditions than we are yielded to the movement of the Spirit who is always, always, always doing something new. And this is true at every level of our human experience as individuals, as families, as churches, as as nations. The fact is, (laughs) it's possible to be so 
confident in what your own personal experience was that you never question your own premise. And maybe the Spirit, like a master violinist in a Washington ball cap, is playing new music, exquisite music, that is meant to stir your soul. But because you are more confident in the certitudes of tradition than you are yielded to the possibility of the movement of the Spirit, maybe you just get right on L'Enfant Plaza, hit the metro to the next stop. Yeah. Yeah. It, it could happen in your families. Well, that's not how we do family around here. Well, every year at Christmas, we gather at my house. (laughs) Or no, this is not how we do relationships, right? I mean, since when did you get all so uppity and you have an opinion all of a sudden? You know, children are meant to grow. Sometimes when I do premarital counseling in preparation for marriage, I'll meet with a couple and I'll say, one thing I recommend that you don't do, don't take a snapshot of your your bride-to-be or your groom-to-be and assume that this is the person you will be married to for the rest of your life. Yeah. But understand that you are saying yes to a dynamic creation of God who God intends on changing and growing and developing and moving in such a way that she and he may be able to discover the new thing in each era of his or her life. And if you are more confident in the version of the other that you met and engaged in and got married to, then you are open to the Spirit who may be doing something new in them. You're going to have a very difficult road ahead. And not only that, but you might be spiritually blind to what the Spirit is attempting to do in you. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what can happen in churches, too? In churches, it's possible, having come out of this thing that we are trying to come out of, which I'm referring to as our recent unpleasantness, <laughs> pandemic, it's possible for us to, to be so confident in the way that we used to operate, in the programs we used to provide, in the methodologies that used to prove sure long ago, it's, it's possible for us to throw everything we can against the wall to see what sticks. And because of our deep confidence in the certitudes of the past, we become spiritually blind to the movement of God's windy spirit that is attempting to always do something new in us. So we have these seven core values, right? We talk about them all the time. And two of them are an attempt to keep us postured in a posture of yieldedness to the spirit. When we talk about theological depth and diversity, we're not just talking about getting deep. And we're not just talking about diversifying. We're talking about you know it's easier to stay in the shallow end of the pool, right? You know that you can put your floaties on, spiritually speaking, and you can kind of splash around, theologically speaking, in the the, the shallow end of the pool. But the, the further out you swim into the deep, the less confident you are for sustaining yourself in the depths. But the greater the confidence is in the maker of the seas. The further you swim out into the deep, the less you're capable. Now, in the shallow waters, all you got to do is stand up. But in the deep, you've got nowhere to stand except upon the confidence of the one who Job described as the maker of the seas, who says to the sea, you can go this far, but no further. 
And you can go this far, but beyond that, you cannot splash your waves, right? We swim deep because not of our confidence in ourselves or in the certitudes of our past, but because of our confidence in the Spirit who will sustain us. We have another core belief or core value that helps us keep a, a, a posture of yieldedness to the Spirit. It's called congregational courage. In this church, we are not threatened by the reality that the way things are are not the way things used to be because we know that when things are the way, when they are no longer the way they used to be, it's not a sign of death, it's a sign of life. It's a sign that God still rolls stones away and resurrects God's people always to do something new beyond what they had imagined they were capable of doing. Do you see it? Because we can walk around with eyes wide open and see nothing. Or we can open our eyes and see around us the movement of the windy spirit of God. You look around and you say, well, gosh. But it's so, it's, it's so frightening. It's, you know, we've lost people. Look, look, our attendance is down. We've lost some people. And I say, yes, we have. I'm in a group called the Metro Ministers. It's of some of the largest congregations in our sister organization around the country. And we have an ongoing online discussion. And sometimes we'll throw a question out. Well, well how, how, how is your attendance? What percentage of your attendance is, how does it compare to your pre-COVID attendance? And across the board, all of us are around about 60% of our pre-COVID attendance. And the common belief, what I hear from pastors everywhere and what they hear from me, is every church I know and every pastor I know has lost people we will never get back. I mean, we've lost people to the pandemic. We've lost people to live stream. We've lost people to an era of divided political atmosphere that makes some people say, well, you know, I'm not going to go to that church if, if they're going to say these things, or I'm not going to go to that church if they don't say these things. We've lost people to mask mandates, and we've lost people to the lack of mask mandates. Come on. We've lost people to the lake. We've lost people to the golf course. We've lost people to the return of travel baseball. We've lost people to the tailgates of SEC football. We've lost people. And if we could, if we, if we chose, we could walk around with our eyes wide open and just not see. We could, we could walk around and see what we're missing rather than open our eyes and look around to see. Look, like right now, look around yourself right now. Look at somebody in this room. FLC, look at somebody in the room. Try to do it without being creepy. <laughs> we could go with our eyes wide open. Oh my gosh, we've lost, we've, we've limited, we've lost so much. Or you could open your eyes and see, look, here's the church. Right here are families who have chosen on a Sunday morning to get up and get here and give themselves to the power of the Spirit moving in and through us. We could choose to see that worship on this campus has never been more alive. 
We could see that in our children and youth ministries, our children and youth are being introduced to a love that will not let them go as they create a foundation for a life after they graduate and move into adulthood. If we had the eyes to see, we may be able to see adult ministries in Sunday school coming back. We might be able to see, if we opened our eyes and looked for it, the launch of a brand new mobilization ministry that is designed to make sure that every man, woman, boy, or girl who wants to may discover and live out his or her God-given call. And because of that, I say, I feel the breeze of a windy spirit moving in and among us, and we could walk around with eyes wide open and see none of that, or we could posture ourselves in humility and say, Lord, this is your church and not ours. It is a gift of grace that we, any of us are a part of it, so blow like the wind of change through us so that we may rise again and be the resurrected body in this world. Yeah. Now, The way we do that is two things. Number one, we don't look at the clock right now. (laughs) Number two, number two, we face our fears, brothers and sisters. We face our fears. They were afraid of Saul because of what he had done to those who trusted the Spirit. He looked tough, he looked mean, he was intimidating. But do you know that most of the people in your life who are tough and mean and intimidating, they're not just tough and mean and intimidating because they're born that way. They are tough and mean and intimidating because they are afraid. They're afraid of something. They're afraid of something they've never seen before. They're afraid of something they've never felt or experienced before. They're afraid of not being in control. They're afraid of letting go of the certitudes of yesterday And taking on a posture of humility and yieldedness to the wind that is blowing of the Spirit today. And so Paul was struck blind for three days. And I find it interesting that he's blind for three days because that is enough time for a resurrection to take place. You know, maybe it's it's true that for us to really see, there has to be a crucifixion of the way we used to see. So that God can resurrect new eyes. Because Paul was not the only blind person in this story. Ananias, God comes to him and says, I want you to go and bring his sight back to him. But Ananias, though he could see, was spiritually blind to what the Spirit was trying to do in Saul. Until he walks in the room. There's a lot to be said, beloved, for walking in the room. He walks in the room and this monster that he had feared his whole life is cowering in the corner, afraid, blind, weak, and suddenly he's no monster and he walks up close to him and he lays his hands on him and the text says he calls him Brother Saul and something like scales fall from his eyes and Saul gets up, he gets a new name, Paul, he, he sees now, he writes half of the New Testament or at least one third of the New Testament. He plants churches all over the Mediterranean and so yes, Paul gets new sight but I don't think it was just Paul who received the new sight because when you get close enough to somebody that you used to fear, close enough to touch them and call them brother or sister, Well, scales fall from your eyes as well. 
And I just ask you this morning, is there anything that you fear like Ananias feared Saul? Is there anything that you fear that is keeping you clinging with like a kung fu grip on the confidences of yesterday? Because if so, maybe what Christ is calling you to do is to simply walk into the room you've never been in and reach out and embrace the thing that has been scaring you to death, a calling, a new season, a conversation you have to have, a yieldedness of heart, a coming to Christ, a yieldedness to the the love of Jesus, joining a church, whatever it is, you walk in, get close enough to it to touch it, and scales will fall from your eyes.